Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, beautiful jiggling snacks, a different kind of milk bar, hoarding seeds, and offloading booze. Hello, Joshna. Hello. How's it going? It's going well. Yeah, it's been yeah. A, a productive week. Feels good. Awesome. This one went by really, really fast, and it's nice to be back here at the mic. I know. And mm. boy, do we have some interesting things to talk about this week. Yeah, we do. We do. Starting with uh, this. This first one's really <laughs> exciting. Let's dive in. You took me right back to chef school, and it was awesome. It was such a delightful and surprising find. Seriously. I have to say, and so refreshing uh, in terms of how different it is from all, you know, all of the news that we're seeing out there that seems to still be very uh, coronavirus centric. And totally. This was sort of linked, but it just took us to a wonderful place. I think it's it fair did. to say. It did. All right. Tell it, tell us, tell it, break it down for us. So the article was mostly about this online community that has developed around aspects. Yes. Which I just le I learned from you a couple of episodes ago what aspic was i didn't even right. know and i'm still not entirely clear but the idea is that there are these foods encased in aspic which is like a jello yes the gelatin base yes the gelatin is often made with booze so for example there was one that was uh, a a Belgian waffle encased in lambic jelly, which is a beer, a Belgian yeah. beer. There was a uh, port. Uh, I've, done, I've done it with port yeah. has been a thing. The Norwegian rye bread, cream cheese and smoked fish encased in an aquavit jelly. <laughs> and they like to describe it as a cocktail and a snack mashed together. Right, right, right. And right. these things are absolutely gorgeous. But what I wanted to get a sense from you, Joshna, is what... Not what does it taste like necessarily, but what is the texture like? Because in my mind, yeah. I feel like aspic isn't quite like jello. I feel like it's maybe a little more firm and a little more crumbly. It is firmer. The but ratio. Talk me through it. Right. So the um, so the aspic jelly itself. I mean, we the the origin story on this is mm -hmm. around preservation, obviously, right? It's about being able to hold miscellaneous parts of things, be it vegetables or animal bits, right, in a form that can be then sliced in like a loaf, kind of, you know, so like head cheese is the probably the best example, right? It's all the different bits of meat, and mm -hmm. then gelatin is added to hold it all together, uh, and so that has been a preserving a sort of early charcuterie technique, right, mm -hmm. way, way back in the day. And I feel like I have the had charcuterie some charcuterie it's not pate but it's sort of pate like where it's assembled and there's that jelly yes thing. yes uh, yes and even called? there is um the pate head cheese head cheese okay head cheese right because it's it, all the miscellaneous bits from a creature's head okay uh it's all different kinds of different toughnesses and stuff so that gelatin holds it all together really nicely another thing is where you'll see like a chicken liver pate mm -hmm. and a gelatin pomegranate or cranberry gelatin layer on top right right yes. just for some flavor and color and as you slice through it so there's that and so the idea of of the preserving and encasing things has as a lot of this, but there's another angle on it, which was what happened at, which was about presentation and performance. Yes. 
Okay. So as a chef student, when we did aspic week, we had to first make a chicken stock and then we turned the chicken stock into the aspic with the addition of the gelatin. Mm -hmm. Right. And then what we had to do is we had these chicken breasts, these poor little things that we had to essentially ladle the aspic over so that it was so the layer of gelatin would completely encase the poached chicken breast. Mm hmm. But we didn't do that before stopping to carve a little flower pattern out of a slice of carrot. Right. Right. And take my tweezers with a little red pepper to make it look like a daisy was somehow sprouting out of the chicken breast. Yes. Right. But the thing is, you have to layer it and then run the thing over to the fridge and let it sit and then back over and the layer and the layer has to be smooth. No ripples. It's this very intense moment in the kitchen. So it's laborious. With a hot knife. Yeah. Oh my God. It is so laborious. And I remember thinking to myself, this is insanity because nobody is ever going to eat this food. This is competition presentation food. You don't think it right? gets eaten? I think what, what I actually liked about the underground aspect appreciation society was that they were eating the things. Right. Right. Because in it my understanding, so beautiful, but my aspic experience, yeah. I felt it so the, to me, the notion of doing anything with food that was not intended to be eaten. Yeah. doesn't work. That's because you weren't right? putting booze in your aspic, Josh. No, yeah. you just got to put some booze in the aspic and then people I guess will that's eat. it, right? I guess that's it. Now, the other thing that I do have to say is, um, meat jello mm -hmm. is not awesome. Okay. Uh, it's not every like the niceness of it is when it is warmed up in a soup and you get a nice sort of melt. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? After you've made bone broth yeah. or something like that, that works. But a lot of these are cold because that's what's required to keep the gelatin in its in that beautiful jiggle. Uh -huh. Right. We need a cold temperature to do that. And putting your teeth through that. I don't love it. So you're, I don't love so it. you're not convinced this would taste necessarily that i'm great. not convinced from a texturally perspective uh, yeah texture i'm not at all uh but for people like you know but there are also people who like love mochi and things like that you yeah. know what i mean people who really dig soft smushy things that your teeth are not necessarily required for uh for them this would be a dream right mm -hmm. uh but it's uh i'm not entirely sure about all of the flavor and I'm curious about the, the texture of all these intricate solid foods that are going inside. Right. It's one thing. It's one thing to say it's a square of canned fruit or peaches. I love those horrible yeah. ambrosia salad things. Right. When it's just one piece of thing. But you're making a sandwich of something or, you know, they're or making I love really the little things. octopi. In case oh, my goodness, They look like paperweights. But I just um, thought, not well, texturally, sure. how am I going to bite yeah. into that? You know, my mind immediately went to now, eating. Listen, give us all the opportunity to be uh, proven wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to hear it. Maybe one day we will find ourselves <laughs> at a meeting of, the, Wait, <laughs> of these folks. But to there's taste. another important detail that we haven't yet discussed. Oh, and I, I tried to join the, the Facebook groups, but they haven't admitted me yet. So I haven't witnessed it. But a big okay. piece of this community is spanking the aspic. Oh, <laughs> and watching it jiggle. From what I understand, That's the telltale sign. I'm guessing oh that God, wasn't part it. of cooking school. Not so much. <laughs> Not so much. Oh my God, that's amazing. I need to. I mean, Spank again, I haven't been in there, so I don't know I if they literally happen, are spanking. Though. I don't know if they just want to see it jiggle, but it does seem to be a piece of this uh, 
experience and oh, uh, that's amazing everything oh, we saw was so photos great. right but wouldn't it be yeah. fun to watch what it how it moves i would especially especially because the quality of the jiggle is the best way to determine the set of the gelatin Okay, so this right? comes like, from a technical it. place. A hundred percent. It's not just that silly. Is the jiggle. It's not just silly. It has it has perhaps been extrapolated with a bit of uh, excess. I guess but you don't normally is, spank. Is that that not the, the culinary well, term, do, Josh? We don't call it that exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a tap. Maybe it's a tap with the back of the spoon, right? <laughs> just for from a QA perspective exclusively. Right. right. Uh, that is very very funny. Uh, I noticed a lot of really adorable uh, jiggle jokes <laughs> that made me laugh a lot. So the framing of Esoteric, this piece yeah. was really, Sorry? the framing of this piece was really around people in this time of isolation really getting into these niche topics. And mm -hmm. they did mention something that I thought was really interesting because aspects is one of the things that they met. They, they, they really focused a lot on it. But they said there's also similar communities for uh, fermented foods and canning yes. and uh, charcuterie. And the point they made, which I think makes a lot of sense, is that TV shows are going to shy away from these topics because of safety concerns, right? When you're talking about yes. fermenting or Absolutely. curing, you know, you don't want to promote things that then people will maybe do wrong and get sick at home. So that's why it sort of pushed all this online. Yep. And... Uh, Again, I think we've touched on this before in the podcast. It just really makes sense in this time of isolation because the two things that we're really craving are uh, food and technology. And this brings them to like, these are the two things that are keeping us sane. So it, yeah. this combines them it, in a very delightful way and allows people to explore it, you know, in the, I guess, it, I don't want to say fetish, but, you know, to really get, get to the, bit, get to the, right? really the core of like what, sort of what, like, what does it for you in terms of online food videos? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, and because these folks are serious, right? And we have talked before about how sort of diluted mm -hmm. the pool, you know, it all seems to be. And so if you really want to have a legitimate, honest, real conversation about how to do this stuff, we're going to have to go into a quiet place to pull that off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and like did you did you see the just speaking of getting really niche? Did you see the aspects with threatening auras? I did see it. I did. And so I that's loved specifically aspects that look creepy. So they it, there's really now you know subgenres within the it's aspect so appreciation community. It's it's delightful on so many levels, and I'm I'm glad to have made this discovery. Yeah, I hope I hope they let you in. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mirella, I am very excited about this. I found this piece about Polish milk bars. Amazing. Uh, right? It is just that already is sort of uh, enticing and captivating. But essentially. The story is that in Poland, there are these federally subsidized restaurants that serve simple, wholesome, affordable food to people. Yeah, uh, right? and I think and it's homemade, right? It is it's homemade all made food, in house. Right? Yeah. It is. And it's, it's very, very simple, but it is, it, is, it is made well with skill and attention and all the things that I look for. Uh, but I just, it is such a simple solution. Right. The idea it that really that, is right. It is such a simple, tidy solution. Uh, and, and to me, understanding how this actually impacts the community, it is a perfect 
is a perfect way to ensure community food security. Right. This yeah. is how you make sure that everybody gets a good meal inside of them at least once a day. For sure. Uh, and I loved the so I mean, I loved so many things about these milk bars. I had never heard about no. them before. But as I was reading about them, it just it really reminded me of dive bars, which right. are now which are now almost a thing of the past mm-hmm. uh, and diners just in terms of this you know, mingling of different age groups and social groups and right. this comfort in the lack of protection, uh, pretension mm-hmm. and this just togetherness. Yep. Uh, it also reminded me a little bit of Honest Ed's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know, a great just way to that, think about it. Totally. Um, a community hub, mm-hmm. right? Where uh, people come together from all different ages, from all different areas, I don't and know. The, the priority, the, the priority is get some good food, not have a fancy dinner, or you know what I mean. All yeah. of that context is really removed from this, uh, and I really, really love it. Now, when I was thinking about how that could be extrapolated to our world here in Canada, I was wondering because obviously this, this the roots of this are in uh, communist leadership. Yeah. Right. So I was curious how much of that is what keeps this working. Right. Would this fly in our democracy? I don't know. I don't know what the translation is. However, right now, in the context of uh, the rampant spread of this virus and our quarantine and and the the real decimation of restaurants, Mm -hmm. the ability we are seeing that the way restaurants are finding an opportunity to stay open is to figure out ways to pivot yeah. Right to change their operation to move away from what their regular menu is to now focus on feeding any number of people, vulnerable folks, uh, people in hospitals, front care, you know, how front frontline workers, whoever yeah. it is. But we, the success is really seeing that pivot and that these kitchens have this like uh, a plan A and a plan B. Yes. Right, there's two ways that they work, and I, I and am keeping affordability in mind. This is it, right? The and that, and that we pare everything down. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's a really wonderful Italian restaurant. But when it comes down to this, you know, side B, when a disaster hits and we have to make this pivot, it's like simple pasta is easy roast. Do you know what I mean? Nothing complicated. Just price points that fit still good, wholesome food using local ingredients, care and attention, all of that. But just in a way that is really accessible. And listen, the kind of food that we're serving here is is exactly the kind of food I've been advocating for in public institutions, uh, you know, and in places like the stop. And so I just I think that this is a perfect solution. And I think that we collectively need to pay more attention to this model as we figure out how to rebuild, how to rebuild our industry. Right. I was also thinking about how we might be able to introduce it here because I do love this idea of there being these places where you can get really good, healthy, homemade food at a low price. It reminds me also of, you know, little student hideaways that you might have around universities. Like there are those places, but it's not that same model and it doesn't have the government subsidy. If this was a more visible thing, I think it would assist a lot of people. And what was fascinating to me, because you did mention uh, the communist connection in Poland, and I thought it was really interesting to hear the journey, right? Because after communism fell in Poland, then Mm -hmm. the, you know, whatever, McDonald's, all the big chains came in and everyone just swapped 
and went eating there. And now there's this revival and they all want to reconnect with tradition. It's very hipsterish in a way. Yes. Right. Uh, And but I thought it was really interesting to read the there was a quote in the article that said when people tuck into their pork chop and mashed potatoes and mushroom soup, they remember why they're Polish. Oh, yeah. And that's a piece that I don't I, I just when I read that and I understood the, the the spirit beyond my initial reaction, which was this cozy place like dive bars and diners, I you know we I don't know what kind of food we'd be serving here, and there you know I don't think we could I think it would there would have to be a variety like there would be yes. the subsidy, and then if that we person have wants to, have to do sort of, basic yeah. Italian food, they can do Italian or or Chinese or Indian whatever but it how is. Nice if we um, could have a little rotation in the kitchen about who yeah. the chef is. I think that would be the Canadian that would be another amazing, remix on this yeah. is just we have it's sort of like a little it's a bit of a, a, a permanent pop up, if you will. Right. And the, and the chef just rolls through whatever week it is. And it's a bit more we would have to have it maybe be a bit more wild card. Yes. Right. To, but it to would be so connect. great. Oh. It's just a fantastic idea. And you still chefs still have the chance to use beautiful ingredients to make good, delicious food for people. Mm-hmm. Right. None of that is compromised. Just things like the China and the circumstance, you know, what I mean, the setting will change. Uh, I, there was one quote that I loved from the piece that says that describes these milk bars as somewhere between a diner and a soup kitchen. Yeah. Right? Both both hip and vital. Yes. Uh, right. And that 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 to me just really speaks to the fact that this is about culture. Mm-hmm. Right. It is about a culture that suggest that really believes that everybody should eat uh, one, you know, should should have access to really good food. OK, Morella, I've got a good news story. I was super excited to see this piece talking about how seed growers are seeing a boost in their sales um, because people I have a sense of the long haul that we're in for with this isolation and there and and now is the time, right? This is the time of year sort of beginning of middle March is when farmers have started sprouting their seeds and growing sweet little seedlings indoors Mm -hmm. to get brave enough to sometime next month in May actually get out into the ground. Uh, So this is the time where farmers are planning and honestly, professional farmers I cannot imagine what their task is right now. Right. Right. How they can forecast for when we will all be back out there buying and eating food the same way, you know, in, in that sort of same volume uh, or, or just imagining who will work the farm, and what operate? this will look like. Yeah. I, ha- I can't imagine how they're pulling this off. Right. As it is, that's not an easy task. But in these circumstances, it feels wild. But the idea that more people will really connect to trying their hand at growing some of their own food feels very exciting to me. Yeah, I was excited at at first. Um, mm-hmm. But my main concern really was, you know, buying seeds does not equal planting things. That's uh, two Truth. different steps. Yes. There's the intention and then there's the follow through. But then uh, as I was reading further, I got... Uh, for lack of better term, it's not really encouraging bit of news, but something that made me feel a, a little bit more confident that people were going to plant, which is unlike my initial thought, which was that people were just, you know, like the sourdough bread and so on, just looking for longer term projects right. to get involved in and something fun to do with the kids, that a lot of this hoarding of seeds is born from a panic that people might run out of food. So right. if right. people are buying seeds because they're worried they're going to, run out of food then that tells me they're going to be very motivated 
to plant those seeds. To actually, yeah. And I also read in the article that there has been a lot of requests from customers for videos and how to's so so that tells Mm -hmm. me that people are following through and certainly you know with no end in sight with these isolation measures there's definitely if they if they plant now and they get started you know they're going to be seeing it through to the end which is wonderful they will see their harvest right it really feels quite likely that they will see their harvest and it's so satisfying Uh, to pick and eat something that you oh my goodness oh yes it's a beautiful and and i hope that the joy of that will be something that helps this stick, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes, this this intense circumstance is what sort of uh, prompted the behavior, but it would be lovely if there was so much joy and satisfaction from the process that that people sort of made a bit of a permanent shift. I would I would love to see that. That would be nice. Um, I was also concerned about uh, another little piece, which was this idea that uh, this is impacting the seed supply some people are se- are already right. selling they were saying stock that they had saved for next year and they're worried mm-hmm. about the supply chain some people were calling seeds the new toilet paper <laughs> in the sense <laughs> that i guess it's something that people are are hoarding so uh, right. again i just really hope that these seeds are being planted because these yes. companies are encouraging people to collect seeds at the end of the year and uh, from the their crop and then send them back but yep. you know none of that's going to happen if people aren't planting it's nothing is going to happen if they don't plant. And unlike toilet paper, seeds don't work if you just leave them in the closet. That's true. Yes. <laughs> it's, right? it's not that much so, work, though. I mean, it's not that it's not that the, much work. At I would all. say that the soil turning day is the most labor intensive, annoying yes. day. The planting day is also labor intensive, but it's kind of fun to sort of decide where everything's going to be. And if it's you like, get it's, that so far, you're making it happen. Yeah, I'm yeah. guessing some people are probably just growing in pots. Potentially on balconies and yeah. things like that, uh, right? A tomato and, and the, at least the rest grow of, in a pot, I'm pretty sure. Various yeah. herbs. It's... Many things. In fact, milk crates are beautiful ways to grow strawberry plants. Milk crates. Because they have all the holes yeah. and all the bits for the, right? And so it makes harvesting so simple because the plants really reach out the holes in the milk crates and the bear and the fruit is just Wait, there. Wait, but how do you pull. hold the earth in? Well, I think there's like one of the ground liners yeah. on the bottom of the milk okay. crate. And then the soil, and it's packed in enough, and then it just starts growing out the sides. Oh, that's fun. Uh, in a very tidy, tidy way. Yeah. Uh, it works, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Morella, as we know, many of our friends uh, in the hospitality industry are really struggling yes. uh, to stay afloat and to find ways to keep the lights on and pay their staff. Uh, and one of the things that is happening is our restaurants are starting to sell their trophy bottles of wine and spirits to attempt to float the rent or keep the lights on. And that that felt like a really big deal for me. Right? It, it is. It felt, and, I agree. And I would love to know what you think. I get that it works. Uh, mm-hmm. And it seems to it seems to be effective, although it also sounds like they're still uh, selling for quite substantially reduced rates. Yeah, but that seems about, you know to I mean? be a choice. Yes. Um, my first thought was this isn't I'm I'm assuming this is an interesting initiative that was born out of a byproduct of the alcohol laws being slackened. Right. Because previously right. you couldn't I think you're sell bottles. Right. Yes. And Good point. Yes. it's interesting to me that this is one of the ideas that came out of it and certainly sh- short term it 
it's a wonderful idea. I mean, it's a win-win, mm-hmm. right? The restaurant is making a, a good amount of money on these bottles and they're pricing them cleverly so that people who like to collect rare bottles are getting a deal. So it really is a win-win. I was a little, I mean, I guess it makes sense, but I was surprised to see that even in these challenging times when everyone's, you know, if not worried about their income, worried about, you know, their save, you know, what they've invested, that uh, the, that need to own these rare things trumps all that, right? Because it it is working. People are, are buying these bottles. Yeah. so yeah, on the short term, it makes sense. But you know, my my first thought was, you know, these sommeliers are really earning their keep at this stage by strategically figuring out, you know, what can we sell mm-hmm. and what can we keep? Because obviously, I'm well, I'm hoping that they're looking forward to the possibility of reopening at some point, and well, they can't reopen it. with nothing in their cellar or nothing, you know, interesting in their cellar. So right. that must be quite the juggling act figuring that and to, out and to figure out how to prioritize which ones can go and which ones need to stay right it, and how it, many it, yes it really made me think of this there's a part and i don't think this is exclusive to indian culture but there's the thing in indian culture where like uh it, it is a sign that times have gotten really difficult when a couple or a family goes to sell like some of the mother's wedding jewelry oh right Right. It is this big sort of wistful moment. Right. And and it's like things have gotten so difficult and she takes earrings or a bangle off. And you know what I mean? Knowing that she's may not ever get this thing back. And we, you know, who did she marry this man who didn't keep her the way? Well, you know what I mean? The deal just fell apart. And so there's really sort of wrist, you know, hand wringing wistfulness about this. And that really came to me when I was reading this story. I was like, don't sell the bangles and the jewelry. That's amazing. Amazing. That that didn't even yeah. occur to me, but you're you're much more in it than I am, so I can see yeah. that you you felt I it, felt it right? that much like, more oh. deeply. Of uh, course, I now, noticed that they were yeah. talking about uh, rare wines and rare whiskeys, and there was no mention of anyone selling off rare beers. I I also I did noticed, notice that because yes. that's certainly a thing that exists. I think beer sellers or establishments with beer sellers are fewer, and you know there aren't uh, as many, but certainly the number of people willing to purchase rare rare beers are very interesting. Probably mm-hmm. as many, if not more people, probably more I'd people willing to buy rare beers because the price point is a lot more manageable. Is lower than rare wine, beer right? Than, uh, some of those wine bottle prices, I was... Oh, it's no jokes, man. Holy yeah. smokes. And the fact that, because they can, some of the restaurants are selling directly and some of them are uh, just selling lots to auction right, houses. Right, to auction houses. Right? And I, I think I might have in the back of my mind have known that they existed, but just being reminded that there is such a thing as a wine indeed, auction indeed. house. Right, exactly. Like that's a, that's and a different universe. It, it, yes. Uh, and, and it, and thinking about this from that perspective there's this one great quote from one of the wine guys uh that i heard that says i couldn't think of a set of circumstances that could provide such a flood of unbelievable product into the market at one time mm-hmm. right the notion that just the, all the gates have opened and everybody's sellers from who knows how many years uh are now opened and, and potentially available for purchase is uh it just witnessing all these levers that this pandemic is pulling to mm-hmm. make things happen that we would have never imagined we'd ever see before is quite extraordinary. 
Yeah, and I hope they're, you know, being strategic with their pricing. I certainly saw a few comments throughout the article that made made it seem like, you know, they are they're selling a little bit cheaper than they could. Okay. Which, you know, mm. they're certainly selling for a lot cheaper than they would sell that bottle tableside. Yes. Whenever, you know, things come back. Um, so but it sounds like this is a relatively recent phenomenon and people are communicating. So I, I think the prices will, will sort of reach a, a sweet spot at some point. But so interesting. I think it's, I, you know, I didn't get that whole, you know, selling of the, the, bangles. the, home, <laughs> the, the heirlooms feeling. To yeah. me, the concern was more around, you know, this is a short-term solution. You get this injection of cash, but then you have to figure out what, what you're going to do after that. Right. It's and just a Band-Aid. It's not a real solution. And, yeah. you know, just how strategic they have to be with every aspect of doing this. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at hotplatepod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.